Okay, let's jump in. I'm glad you're here. Um, I just uh, I just had a very very humbling humbling experience, and uh, I just share it with you. Not not God forbid to to bring you down, but hopefully to pick you up. It says in Perke Avos that um, it's better actually to go to a house of mourning than to a big party, and you know usually a big party is is a lot funner. So why is it better to go to a house of mourning, which is, um, you know, not as much fun? And the, the reason um, is because that uh, if you go to a house of mourning, you, you really feel, uh, you feel that, that life, at least life inside um, the body that we're currently in, is, is finite. And, and it actually picks you up to want to do, to do more in, in life and to inspire you to do more. So... Um, I had one of those moments. I, I, the, um, I was privileged to know uh, Sam Worthman. He, he passed away. He was 95 years old. Uh, Shlomo ben Ephraim Fischel, Sneshoma uh, should have an Aliyah. As we're speaking right now, his body is being flown to Israel. I, I uh, had the opportunity to, to hold the coffin as it was um, being loaded onto the airplane. And um, it was it was a, a long metal box, and uh, dark gray. And I saw something that just broke my heart, which was, I, as I was walking with the with the coffin being carried by several people, it was covered with um, it was covered with um, uh, a long velvet cloth, you know, with a Mogan David, a Jewish star on it. And I was like, right at the end, and I was wondering the whole time as we're walking with it, am I looking at his face? Like I imagine maybe I'm looking at his face, or maybe his feet are here. I don't know. What, what's the tradition? Which way are you escorting it? And so I didn't know, and I was just kind of wondering. But I imagine anyway that I was looking at his face as I was carrying it, davening. And then they put it on the... the, uh, the, the the, the loading cart, and they took off the velvet um, cover. And there it was, just one long metal box. And I saw someone had written on the far side of it, in just magic marker, like it was, there was no writing on it, but just in magic marker, someone had written his name, and underneath in parentheses, head. And it was like... Well, I guess that's where his head is, you know. And it just, you know, thought about myself. Thought, wow, okay, so that's what it's going to be, right? I'm in a box, and on one side it's going to say head. And that's about it, right? So you better hurry up, David. <laughs> you know, whatever you want to do, get cracking, because, you know, one of the great things of studying Torah and being really aware of the greater reality is is to know that we're never going to die because the soul lives on forever but but there's a we shouldn't allow that knowledge of our own eternity to undermine the critical absolutely critical aspect of our lifespan that we're in right now which is this opportunity of being inside of a body. Um, 
it's, uh, it, it, it can't be underestimated. You know, it says that the Vilna Gon on his deathbed was holding his tzitzis and crying. And they were asking him, like, you know, what's going on? And he said, for a few pennies, I can buy this mitzvah of tzitzis. And where I'm going, I'm, there is no currency to be able to access the physical mitzvahs anymore. Like, it's all over. And now they're so... I can just grab them. I can grab them if I want them. You know, I heard Rabbi Green say one time, if an angel pushes over a chair, you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. That, that we have the ability to enact a cause and effect in this world because we're in a body. We can smile. We can make a smile. And that can trigger a domino effect that we'll, we won't know about till, till 120. You know, because I'm smiling, smiles are contagious. You smile, someone who's not even talking to you sees you smile and then they start to smile and then the next conversation that they have may be more positive than negative, which then triggers all sorts of things we have no concept. You know, they talk about chaos theory where the flapping of a butterfly's wings in South America affects the weather patterns, you know, thousands of miles away across the world. It's very real, and it's not metaphysical at all. You know, if you, if you think that your smile actually changes whether this discourse between these next two people is an argument or something more uplifting, I mean, that's a very tangible, real, like, factor in just, in, in terms of where the world is and where the world is going. So... So, so anyway, I just uh, want to share that with you guys. And um, all right, so let's uh, let's start. Um, I think that I think that there's um, you know God gives us free choice, and I, I I'm, I'm laughing because. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo Katz was in town, and he said something that it's just been staying with me. He had he, he was here right after spending Shabbos in in Chicago, and you know they're having a, a very severe winter there, you know, in so many places around the world, but really in Chicago. And he said, you know, I spent the Shabbos talking to them about free choice, explaining to them, you know, you really don't have to live here. <laughs> you know, so. So God gives us, God gives us free choice, but there's uh, and there's so much. It's really the glory of a human being is their free choice. It's literally the glory of a human being that you can actually choose to do the right thing. It's awesome, um, but you know there's such a terrifying downside to free choice, which is that you can also choose to do the wrong thing, and a person can even choose as God is giving them life, as God is, you know. You know, filling their lungs with oxygen and, and keeping their synapses firing in their brain can choose to deny the existence of God, right? And then be congratulated for it by their very intellectual colleagues, right? <laughs> this is why well, God is keeping them alive and their very intellectual colleagues alive as well and the world going. So that's, that's the other side of free choice. So... So, so free choice is free choice is very deep, and free choice goes to the extent that that we make very 
profound um, decisions about who and what God is. And, and so it becomes not only possible, but um, commonplace to use our free choice. And, and a lot of times it's, it's really based in lack of learning or, or let's call a spade a spade ignorance. To, to use our free choice to, to completely misunderstand God, to not understand who he is or what he is at all. And I think maybe at the heart of that is, is something that I, I, I just want to spend a little time on, because I think this is a very fundamental concept for us to grow closer to God and, 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 and grow spiritually, is, is to understand the difference between punishment and tikkun. Um, you see, punishment is something that a lot of us think that God loves. <laughs> you know, one of the great slanders of Judaism, and you know, you know, I, uh, without calling out other religions, but I have one specifically in mind, you know, they, they have the chutzpah, the chutzpah, right? To call the quote-unquote Old Testament, right? That's the God of punishment, right? But the New Testament, that's the God of love. What a chutzpah. What a chutzpah. First of all, the Old Testament as, a, as, a, as an expression itself, is, is, it's mamish anti-Semitic, you should know. Because the Torah is absolutely eternal. Old Testament implies that somehow there was an expiration date on it. There is no expiration date on the Torah. You know? So, so to suggest otherwise is to fundamentally discredit what, what it is that we stand for. And to say that God is a God of punishment, that that's the God that's pictured in the, in the, in, in, represented in the five books, is, is, is horrific. It's, it's, a, it's a horrific slander on what we say about God and what we know God to be. You know, the, 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 the calling card of Judaism is Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that God is one. Echad is the same gematria, meaning to say it has the same spiritual DNA as the word Ava. Echad and Ava. Ava means love. God's oneness, which is our primary starting point for understanding the universe, God's oneness is an expression of His love. So then what's this concept of punishment? And, and, and just as a caveat before we get into this, we have to understand that that punishment is an English word. And whenever you're dealing with very exalted, holy Torah concepts, and you're using English words, you have to be very aware of the fact that you're overlaying an alien theology that's implicit in the foreign language words onto Torah. You have to be very guarded about that. doesn't mean that if you don't speak Hebrew that you can't learn Torah. God forbid. My Hebrew is pathetic. But... But certain key words, you have to really understand, okay, what's the Hebrew and what's the Hebrew really saying, okay? So punishment, punishment speaks of a God and, and a lot of us just emotionally, whether, you know, other religions aside right now, just emotionally, we grow up with an experience where we think, or many people think, if I do something wrong, God is just waiting to zap me. He's waiting to zap me. And this, nothing could be further than the truth. We have to be responsible for our own actions. And we can't say, oh, you know, God loves me so much. He even loves me as I'm being, you know, wonderfully and charmingly irresponsible. That's, that's immaturity. That's immaturity. 
You know, it's okay for a kid, but when a person gets a little bit older, it's not okay. A person has to outgrow that, you know? So, but assuming that a person is not being wonderfully and charmingly irresponsible, right, and is taking their life seriously and taking their commitment seriously, then we can't go to a place that God is just waiting to punish or something like that. It doesn't, it doesn't follow. So what is tikkun? Tikkun, if we were to try to translate it into English, because tikkun is what's going on. And sometimes when a person experiences discomfort, that in, in terms of their life circumstances or, or whatever it is, then we have to say what's going on is a tikkun. So the, the best English word that I, I know for that is a, is a fixing, a rectification. So what's the difference now between punishment and tikkun? Because a person can be experiencing it the same way. But they're complete opposites. Complete opposites. Punishment is um, smacking someone and I'm sending them away. Right? I don't want to see them. They're punished, right? I don't want to see them. But you know something? If, if a garment gets a hole in it, do you know how close you have to pull it next to you in order to sew it up? Tikkun means that you have to pull something so much closer in order to fix it. So that's Hashem in us. If we go through something that's a difficult experience, that's Hashem, Mamish, pulling us closer. You know, I'll tell you something. I heard something on the radio many years ago from Rabbi Meir Fund. And, you know, it's my own lack, I'm sure, but whatever internet circles or life circles I'm traveling in, I don't see his name. So I brought it up yesterday two times, this teaching that I heard from him two times. And a few hours later, I get an, an interview from like 20 years ago that he did with Rib Shloma, like in my mailbox. It's been happening a lot. You know, I bring up a, a teaching, like last week I said it. I brought up a teaching from the Sansa Rebbe that I heard over tw around 20 years ago. I never saw it in a book. Right before I went to sleep later that day, I opened up a book that I never look in at random, and there was the story that I told from the Sansa Rebbe. I never saw it in print before. So Hashem is very close. So what's this teaching from Rabbi Fun? He said the following, that if you have something like, say, a jar, and it breaks, and you put it back together, it never looks as good as it did before the time that it broke. He said, ah, but if you have something that breaks, and you put it back together, in the eyes of heaven, it looks even better than it did the first time. Right? In the eyes of heaven, it looks even better than the first time. So this is the idea that a tikkun is actually an expression of love, and it's God pulling us close to him, and he's doing a fixing in order to bring out something even better in us, to bring out something even higher in us. So, you know, we say, yeah, but it hurts, but it hurts, and it's uncomfortable, and I don't like it. So listen to this. I shared it last week, but it's, it's, it's staying with me. It's so strong from the Kutzka Rebbe. He says, if you see someone in shul, like a man in shul, caressing the face of a boy, you know, sometimes you see it, it's a sign of love, like they'll just sort of like, just wipe their palm on the child's cheek, Right? There's no guarantee that that man is the child's father. 
But if you see a man slap the face of a child, you can know for sure that's the father. Right? So he uses this to explain the fact that the month of Av, which means father, is also the month where all the tragedies of Jewish history are, are the epicenter of all of them. The destruction of the temples and many, many other events are located in this month of Av, Father. But this is God bringing us closer in order to fix what we need to fix. So I heard Rabbi Tzvi Freeman say that there's only two drachim, two paths in life stemming from God. There's good and there's very good. Good is what we understand to be openly revealed good. Very good, though, is often hard to handle. And he gave such a, he gave such a, a, a clear metaphor. He said, you know, when you get a promotion in a job and you get a whole new, new set of responsibilities, it's stressful. You know, we think, oh, you know, why do they pay you more in a job? Because they want you to do more, which means there is more stress. More people are looking to you to do a better job. So you think, oh, you know, like I got a promotion. That just means that they want to throw more money at me because I'm a nice guy. No, they're giving you a promotion to do more and better work. Right? There is more on the line. So that's very good. That's hard, because on the one hand you say, well, it's, you know, I got a promotion, that seems good, but wait a second, my life just got much harder. So that's the idea of a very good, that's the idea of tikkun, is that a person, you know, has arrived at this place where Hashem is pulling them closer in order to bring them up more. But that entails a new set of responsibilities. And we have to look at that, we have to look at the flow of our lives, the flow of our lives. And you know, you know, I I once had an experience with a guy who is, you know, like a very he's a beautiful guy, and I actually love him a lot. But he's also a very serious guy, and he's a very quote unquote religious guy, you know. And uh, he once said to me, I never forget it. Just uh, like I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe a good twenty years ago. He looked at me and, you know, was sort of like evaluating me and said, you know, I really see your life going in one of two directions. And I said, really? Just one of two? <laughs> I said, I see that as a failure of imagination. <laughs> and so a lot of us, I think, are, are guilty of a failure of imagination actually about our own lives. And what I mean to say by that is that so many of us bring as the starting point of our lives or of our purpose in this world, our birth. But really, the starting point of our consciousness really is the creation of the world itself. And the fundamental question is, why, why was the world created? And once I try to answer that question, why is there a world anyway? Then I can begin to understand who am I and what am I and what role do I play in the accomplishment of the creation of the world or the perfection of the world? So, so God created this world in such a way where he hid himself. And the, 
the irony is it's like, it's what we call hiding in plain sight. And you know, one of my favorite Torahs, if you look at the word for world, olam, the root of the word, word olam, um, which means world, is elam, ayin lamid mem. And it's so deep. Elam means concealed or hidden. So the word for world is concealed because God is concealed in this world. I mean, God tells it us, to us straight out, you know? And yet, at the other hand, right, from the Alter Rebbe, I'm sure, back to, you know, back to way before then, we know that God is as present in this dimension of reality as he is in Olam Atzilus, in the highest spiritual realms. He's equally here. So, so these are, these are, these are, these are seemingly paradoxical concepts. And these are ideas that we really have to live with and we have to reconcile in our minds. Because on the one hand, we say that God is as, as, as present before us as he is in the highest spiritual realms. And on the other hand, we say God is concealed. So let's figure out what that means and what that doesn't mean. Okay? What that doesn't mean is that sometimes God is here and sometimes God isn't here. That's not what it means. It means God is always 10,000% here. But the vocabulary that he speaks to us in is one of challenge, one of concealment, one of quote-unquote sometimes problems or difficulty or pain. And we have to understand when we receive a challenge, right, that that's not... A, an expression of the lack of God in our life. Rather, that's the language that God is speaking to us in at that moment. You see, there are a lot of people who, if, and you've got two types of personalities that I've noticed. One type of personality, if they only see two. good, <laughs> only two. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> For the purposes of this thought, yes, only two. <laughs> You've got one type of personality, which is, um, which is that they want to thank God for all the good. And they're even, you know, ag- ag- aggressively thankful and, and really on it. But deep, deep in their heart or in their mind, if they see bad, they don't really understand or challenge or whatever it is. Somehow... As, as, as being like a lawyer for God or a defender of God, they go, well, that's not from God. Right? But there's a, there's a problem with that but, because that's also from God. You see, they, they want to be so spiritual and they want to be so good and so holy that they're saying, okay, I'm only going to see the good. And if there's bad, I, I don't, they, don't, they, they haven't wrapped their minds around it. There are other types of people where you know, why is God doing this to me? Like, they only see God in the problems, right? And then if they get a good job or whatever it is, well, why not? Because I'm so smart, right? So, of course, I got that big break because I worked very hard and, you know, I'm gifted, whatever it is. But, so that they credit to themselves, not to God. But, you know, this problem and that problem, I what is God doing to me? So they see God in everything bad, but not in the good stuff. So these, this is, both sides are flawed. I mean, if you had to pick one, the first one is better, probably, I would say. 
but, but both sides are flawed because both are somehow denying God's presence in absolutely everything. And this gets us back to this paradoxical world that we live in, where on the one hand, we live in a world, Olam, which is Elam, which is a place of the concealment of God. And on the other hand, we know that God is as present here as he is in Olam Atzilus, in the highest spiritual dimensions. So, so what a person has to do, and this, 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 is not, these are, this, this is not easy, but if you want to grow and become more sophisticated, one has to begin to understand that, that, um, that the challenges are also God speaking to us. And that's Mamish 100% God too. And that that's God reaching out to us in that form as well. And then that way, everything can be God, because that's the goal. Hashem Echad. That way, everything can be God. So, the holidays that deal with this is, is really, it's, it's really Purim, you know? And, and, and so, let's, let's, let's deepen the conversation now and get maybe, hopefully, a, a better grasp of, of Purim. And also, we're doing, we just read Kisisa, the Parsha that has the sin of the golden calf. And let's try to understand the connection between Purim and the sin of the golden calf. Because most years, Purim is coming right before we read about the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf, okay? So I'd like to say, I'm sure I'm not the first one, that, that this is like the Rafua Lefnei Hamaka. In the Talmud, we have a principle that, the, that God gives us the cure before he gives us the, the smack, so to speak. Right? So Purim is coming to fix the sin of the golden calf. Right? It's coming first in order to, to stop us from falling into the problems of the golden calf. So, so, so we have to understand what's, what's the golden calf? What happened with that? So, so basically, basically, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher, was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. He's getting the Torah. And the classic explanation is that the Jews lost count of exactly when he's coming down. They, they miscounted by a day. And as a result, they thought that he's, he's not coming down. Right? Now, now, Hashem then gave us this enormous test, this incredible test. It says in the Gomorrah that, that the Sutton, right? Now, remember, when we talk about the Sutton, we, we have to understand what that is. So just very simply, the Gomorrah explains that the Yetzahara, which is that temptation to do the wrong thing, the Malach Amavas, what we call the, the angel of death, right, which attacks our body, and the Sutton, which is like a heavenly accuser, that all those three forces are one thing. That's just one, that's one idea. The Yetzirah, the Malachim and the Sutton, that's all one thing. That's what the Talmud says. We also have to understand that good, that evil rather, works for good. There are no two powers. Because if we say there's good as one force and evil as an independent force, then we're saying that God is not one, God is two. Because there are two powers. So Judaism absolutely rejects that idea. So that means that evil works for good, since we know God is good. 
So how does that manifest itself in our lives? So the teaching is that if the Sutton comes to a person, it wants you to say no to it. Right? And it says that if you say yes to it, it tears its clothes and cries. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. So evil is there only to bring about more good. Okay? So now the Jews are at Mount Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu is not coming down. And the Gemara says that the Sutton holds up a coffin of Moshe. And everyone thinks that Moshe's dead. And they go into this mass panic, and we make the golden calf. Now, I had a, an interesting uh, series of votes over Shabbos. Somehow it hit me. What do you think would have been worse? Because the rabbis explained that we were really trying to replace Moshe. We wanted some kind of reference point. What would have been worse if we had made a golden calf, as we did, or if we had made a golden statue of Moshe? Wow. <laughs> right? That's a heavy question, right? So I took a vote. I took a vote in two places. So far, who says a golden statue of Moshe would have been worse? It's hard to do. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Okay, who says the golden calf would be worse? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, in, in, so now I took three votes. Each time, the golden statue of Moshe was voted as worse. You know? Anyway, it's a hypothetical question, but something to think about, you know? So anyway, so but here's the question. Here, here, here's really the question. From this that you see, from this Gomorrah, you see that it was a test from God. Right? Because the whole panic got triggered from the fact that we were shown Moshe's coffin. Right? So the question is as follows. We know what we did wrong, but if it was a test, what were we supposed to do? In other words, I can think about now till the end of days what I did wrong, but tell me what I was supposed to do so I can do it right, so that I can improve my life, so I can grow. What did God want from us by showing us the coffin of Moshe? So I'm sure you could give a lot of answers, but I'll just give you my answer, which is, which is I think that Hashem wanted us to say, you know, We just lost our greatest leader, you know, probably the greatest human that, that ever lived. But Hashem, we still have you. You know, we still have you. So what's next? What do you want from us next? And to understand that maybe God was really trying to make us understand in the deepest way that we have that direct, direct, direct relationship with him. And, you know, my daughter, Sarah, said something so deep. She's 15. After I told her that, she said to me, yeah, but when God spoke to us directly at Mount Sinai, our souls flew out of our bodies. Right? So we were afraid of that direct relationship with God. So I guess that's still with us. The repercussions of that is still with us. Why did our souls fly out of our bodies, by the way? And it did happen two times when God spoke the first two commandments. The first time, because God said, Anochi, I am, which means there is no other, which means that our body, which on some degree is a barrier for us spiritually to knowing God, that our bodies fell away. And it was just a total merger 
of our soul, which is a piece of God and God, right? Because God said, I am. So all barriers broke down and we just fused with God on the highest level. Then when, then God put us back in our bodies and then he said, there is no other. Sometimes our body is other, right? So our, all the bodies fell away and we fused with God again and we became one with God again. So I think that I think that we have an existential dilemma when it comes to having a direct relationship with God. And I'm talking about you and me in the here and now. Because we think, and I'm sure this isn't conscious, these are like soul-level thoughts, right? We think if I have a direct relationship with God, I'm going to disappear. Right? There's going to be nothing left of me. I know, I know that people are afraid of becoming religiously observant. I don't want to say orthodox because I don't like that word. I heard someone refer to it as classic Judaism. Right? <laughs> right? Like classic Coke, you know? Like that's, that's what we've been practicing, except for a little sociological blip with all apologies to reform and conservative and reconstructionist, you know? Except for a sociological blip this is the Judaism that we've been practicing since the very beginning, you know? And um, there are a lot of people who are afraid to do it because they think if I keep, start keeping Shabbos, then, then I'm going to disappear. If I start keeping kosher, then I'm going to disappear. But you know something? What a fundamental level of disrespect a person is showing themselves. Because what? Because I'm not going to go to the... Because I'm not going to go to the movies Friday night. My essence is tied to the movie theater, to the popcorn I eat Friday night. Like, give yourself more credit than that. Or my my identity is tied to the bacon cheeseburger that I that I eat. Give yourself more credit than that. Right? It's true. There are some things that fall away, but there are dimensions and worlds, literally worlds that open up at the same time. You become more you, not less you. You become more you. So this idea that if I have a direct relationship with God, somehow existentially I'm going to disappear, a person shouldn't be afraid of that. A person shouldn't be afraid of that. Because it's not true. That's the Eight Sahara. That's the Eight Sahara trying to tell you, don't do it, right? You're the real power. You're the real power. I heard Rabbi Shapiro say something, such a deep and heavy insight about idol worship. He says, you know what idol worship is? You think it's someone bowing down before a statue? That's not what it is. You know what the real power dynamics are? It's making yourself into a god. Because, because, because here's the unspoken language of idol worship. I, as a god, am choosing you to be a god. But who chose you to be a god? Oh, I, the god, chose you to be the god. Right? Where did you get your smicha from, so to speak? <laughs> from me. <laughs> Which means the power rests in me, not you. I happen to be bowing before you because that's a way of elevating myself. You know where we learned that from, by the way? From Paro. Because Paro prayed to the Nile. But if you look at the language of the, of the Torah, it says that he stood al Nile, Al, or whatever word uh, it uses for the Nile. But he uses the word al Ayin Lamed, which means above. That here, Paro is, so to speak, worshipping the Nile, but the Torah tells the truth. 
The Torah tells you that Paro was standing above the Nile, meaning to say that he considered himself the true power. And all this goes back to the ability to have the imagination of understanding our own identity as dating back from before the world was created, from the beginning of the world, as opposed to my own birth. Right? Because then my question is, now I'm contextualized. Now I understand my role in this much, much greater epic thing that God is doing. He's, he's, he's bringing about the rectification of worlds, literally. And I'm playing a role in it. We all are playing a role in it. So what's my role? What am I doing? How can I bring out the talents that God bless each and every one of us toward the perfection of the world itself, as opposed to just running after my own, whatever it is, my own interests, my own hobbies. Okay. So, so now how is Purim fixing this? How is Purim helping us to have this direct connection with God, this direct relationship with God? Because we said Purim always is coming before the sin of the golden calf, and we have Rufu'alif Ne'amaka, the cure before the, before the smack, right? So what's Purim? So now... There's a very famous Torah, unbelievable Torah, that says that Purim is, can be related to Yom Kippur, right? Yom Kippur, right? And I've heard this Torah many times, but I never understood it the way I understood it now. So, so Yom Kippurim, Yom means day. Yom Kippur we know is the holiest day of the year, right? Seemingly. Ke is a prefix in Hebrew, which means like. So Yom Kippurim means a day like Purim, which means that Yom Kippur is only a day like Purim, which means Purim is even higher than Yom Kippur. So how can Purim be higher than Yom Kippur? So I want to say the following, and hopefully this will reconcile what we've been saying up until now. The idea that Olam comes from Elam, which means concealment, and at the same time, because God is concealed in this realm, but at the same time, he's as present here as he is in the higher dimensions. Okay, so how are we going to understand Purim in this context? So, I'll tell you something, a, a strong gematria that, that I just heard from my son, you know, he's 14 now, you know, unbelievable, from Mendy, said, you know, God's name is never mentioned in God's name is never mentioned in the Megillah, in the Megillah's Esther, which tells the story of Purim. But you know what you have? You have the word Melech or Hamelech, the king. And we know, we've learned, that, that the greatest tzaddikim, when they have conversations, they're having two conversations at once. They're talking to you and God at the same time. Right? Like when Yehuda appeals to Yosef before he knows that Yosef is really his brother, he thinks he's the viceroy and that he's about to keep Binyamin for himself and it's going to bring Yaakov's head down and death and it's like it's, it's, it's absolutely the obliteration of, of the Jewish mission in the world and Yehuda it says Yehuda approached him and spoke and so Rebbe Eger and the Rebbe's say what does it mean he approached him it doesn't say Yosef that, that he was speaking to Yosef and God at the same time right and I think I've shared with you that if you want to try this, I, I, I tried it. it, it blows your mind out. It's, it's very hard to have this, to maintain this level. It's, it's, it, will, like, it can short-circuit your brain. But every once in a while I remembered and I try it. But I remember I was at Starbucks 
and I ordered a cup of coffee, and I thought, you know, let me try to speak to the the the, the, the cashier and God at the same time, because when you ask for a when you're ordering a cup of coffee, what are you actually doing at that moment? Let's be real, you're actually praying for a cup of coffee, right? I mean, if you if you want to be real, that's what's going on. So I remember like looking at the person and saying, please, may I have a cup of coffee? <laughs> you know, I was ordering for a cup of coffee and davening for a cup of coffee at the same time, you know? And it's like, it, it can, it, it really, it's in small doses, if you want to, <laughs> in small doses, try to, yeah, be careful with that one because it's very mind-expanding. So, anyway, um, so, so Purim, so Hamelech means the king, referring to Ahasuerus. But who is Hamelech? Who is the king? That's Hashem. Hashem is the king. So when it says Hamelech, it's referring to God. It's referring to both at the same time. Right? Now listen to this gematria, something unbelievable. Hamelech is gematria Haman. Hamelech, which means God in this context, is 95. Haman is 95. Can you imagine Hamelech and Haman are the same gematria in the, in the Megillah? Why? How? Again, it's getting back to this idea of olam and elam, concealment and revelation going on simultaneously. Because God gives us the free choice. What do we want to see? What do we want to see? You know, you can see someone across the room laughing and you can be convinced, oh, of course he's laughing at me. But how do you know he's laughing at you? How do you know that he didn't just think of something funny that has nothing to do with you? And you have now something which is really crazy, which is that you have two things going on at once. You have an inferiority complex because you are convinced that that person is laughing at you. But all of a sudden, the whole world revolves around you because he has to be laughing at me, right? which is totally arrogance. It's totally a superiority complex. So now you have a superiority complex simultaneously happening during an inferiority complex. <laughs> right? Because he's laughing at me because everything has to do with me because I'm so great. There's a superiority. And he's laughing at me because I'm so low. So, um, you know. Right? See, we got to untangle all the knots in our soul, untangle all the knots in our heart, untangle all the knots in our brains. We just have to see it, just see it as Hashem and understand that Hashem is giving us the choice. What do we want to see? So let's get back to this idea of Purim and, 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 and Yom Kippur. How is Purim even higher than Yom Kippur? So I want to tell you a story. I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine in a completely different context, but I'm going to use this to try to explain this idea. And I wish I remembered the name of the rabbi. I don't, but he was one of the great rabbis of the 20th century. And his brilliance, uh, in part, was his ability to explain incredibly complicated ideas really clearly. So he was auditioning for, this, for the rabbinate, for, the, for this big job, and he gave a, a speech before the, you know, the community, and he didn't get the job. And they explained to him afterwards, they said, you know, you know, it was good, it was a good speech, it was a good speech. But, you know, the rabbi that we had before, he was so brilliant, when he spoke, no one understood him. 
right? So, <laughs> so we tend to think that if something is beyond me, if it's, if, it's, if it's beyond my ability to comprehend, that's where the holiness lies, in, in my inability to comprehend. And by the way, there's something to that. I don't want to discredit that because there is something to that. The Katskarebi says, I would never worship a God I understand. <laughs> right? Because if I understand God, then what's the difference between me and God? Right? So why should I worship him? So there is something to this idea. And these are the chukim, by the way. Just not to get too technical. If you follow, you follow. There is something, there is something to the fact that God transcends my rational mind, and that there's great kedusha, there's great holiness in that. But at the same time, God made my mind. What about the part that he made? What about the part that I'm using to understand? If I can't use my faculties of understanding to understand, then that's a flaw. And if I can use my rational mind to understand fully, then that's revelation. And that's greatness. And now we can get to this comparison between Yom Kippur and and Purim. See, Yom Kippur, we're like angels. And we really are like angels. But you know, angels are beyond already. See, I can't see angels with my eyes. Right? That's already the, the, the spiritual realms. That's already beyond me. So... And, and Yom Kippur is cleaning the soul. I can't see my soul. I'm not diminishing the holiness of it at all, God forbid. But I'm just saying it's, it's a little bit more conceptual. Ah, but Purim? Purim, God is saying, Hello, I'm right here. I'm right here. Oh, your, your cup is empty. <laughs> Fill it up. <laughs> Sit down. Have some steak. It's time to eat. It's time to dance. It's time to party. Oh, and you know that guy you ran into in the supermarket? That was me. And you know that phone call that, you know, you got the wrong, even that wrong number you got? That was me. (laughs) You know? And the fact that you missed that bus, but then you got on that bus, and then you ran into that guy? That was me. God is showing us that he's completely revealed. That he's 100% revealed. That everything in front of our face is the revelation of God 100%. That's Purim. That's why Yom Kippur can just, it's only like Purim. Because Purim itself is absolutely revealing the obviousness of God in front of us. Where God no longer becomes concealed. And to the extent that He is concealed at all, that it's only, you know, a wink and a nudge once you're in on the secret that he's absolutely here. Remember, Megillus Esther means the revealing of the concealed. Megillat means to reveal. Hester means hidden. Megillus Esther means the revelation of the hidden. That's what's going on. God is telling you I'm absolutely everywhere. Then, if you know, now let's see how, how Purim is, the Rafuel of Neamaka, how Purim is fixing the golden calf. Once you know that God is absolutely everywhere, so Moshe's not coming down from the mountain, and my heart is broken in a thousand pieces. We've lost our greatest leader. Okay, what's next, God? But you're here. What's next? What do you want next? What, what, what do we do now? 
Do we appoint another leader? Do we not? Do we, should we start marching to Israel? Do we stay here? What do we do? God, just, what's next? You know? It's not a panic. There is no panic. There's no room for panic. There's no room for panic. All right, so let's go one step deeper. So the, the Haftorah for the golden calf, I never really kind of like realized that that's the same subject also. So the Haftorah is talking about Eliyahu, and Eliyahu does one of the great things in Jewish history. He makes a showdown with the idol worshippers. Right? What is idol worship? It's a, it's a concealment of the oneness of God. That's what it is. It's, it's giving power to things that don't have power. Okay? And misdirecting people's consciousness and attention away from the oneness of God. So, so Eliyahu says, enough, enough, because the Jews had fallen to a very, very low place because they had also been beaten down terribly. It hadn't rained for three years. Right? There was a divine drought that was, that was called in order to just to, to, to bring people's hearts, to smash the people, basically, to smash their hearts open, to bring them back to God. And, uh, but they experienced it, and it just kind of sent them tailspinning more downward because they, they couldn't receive that level of din, that level of judgment. And so now Eliyahu shows up, and he says to the people to get them off of idol worship. He says, we're going to have a showdown. And by the way, he's the most wanted man in the world. The king, Ahab, Ahab, has killed all the prophets, except for a hundred that have been hidden in, in 50 in a cave and 50 elsewhere by the prophet Ovadia. Okay? So, and everyone's looking for all over the world, literally. They're looking to find Eliyahu to kill him. Now Eliyahu shows up and he goes, okay, this is it. It's time for the showdown. He says, we're going to make two sacrifices. We're going to have my sacrifice. This is at Har Carmel. And you're going to have your sacrifice. And we'll see which one God accepts. And that's the answer. Which is like heavy, right? Like I, 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 I haven't read in closely, but I don't know that Eliyahu made this deal with God first. I don't see where it says that, he's, that he said to God, okay, you know, God said to him, okay, we're going to make this contest. Maybe it says it. I don't know about it. But he says we're going to make this contest. Now listen to this. There's, they make a statue of the Baal, right, which was the leading idol. And they put someone inside of it. He was hiding inside of it. This is what the Medrash says. In order to light a fire so that it would look like the Baal's the offering before the Baal had been accepted, mm-hmm. right? Which, you imagine, the, the whole Jewish people are standing there, like waiting to see what's going to happen. Can you imagine? So God sent a scorpion into the statue, and it bit the guy, and he died on the spot. Right? Like, amazing, amazing. So now... They're trying to get like a fire going because, you know, they're saying like Eliyahu saying the fire should come down from heaven. Who's it? Who's it going to take? Which one is it going to take? You know, so they're dancing and they're praying and everything like that. Now, we have a rule from the Talmud, a very interesting rule, a very beautiful rule, actually, that says 
You're not allowed to make fun of idol worshippers. See, idol worshippers, you know, they're trying. They're trying to connect. They're trying to do the right thing. There's a level of sincerity. Idol worship, you can mock. The ideology you can mock. The people you can't mock. But the ideology you can undermine. So Eliyahu is, is standing there and he's watching them dance around. And of course, it's a, it's a game over. There's nothing that's going to happen there, right? So he says to them, he says some amazing things. He says to them, he says, you know, why don't you shout a little louder? Maybe your God can't hear you, you know? <laughs> so, you know, then he says, you know, maybe your God's all fighting a war. So that's why he's not like, he's busy right now. And then he says, I can't believe this. This is the ultimate. He says, maybe your God is relieving himself. <laughs> he's oh. in the bathroom. He's going to the bathroom right now. <laughs> that's why he's, he's not being attentive to your, which is like, wow, you know? Now, I don't know if you've had this experience where you've tried to light a fire and the wood has been wet. Have you ever had that experience? You have. Very frustrating experience because the, the wood doesn't catch on fire. It just kind of smokes. So it's a, it's a bummer when it happens. So he's got his wood and he's got his offering, Eliyahu does, and he says, you know what? Pour a jug of water on top of it. Right? That's like, okay, that's really upping the ante because now the wood's wet. Now it's not going to light, right? Then he goes, you know what? Pour another jug of water on top of it. And he's made a trench around the, the offering. He says, you know what? Fill up the entire trench with water and pour some more water on it. And then a fire comes down and everyone is like, okay, that's it. It's just God openly revealed. Again, the connection to Purim, God's hiddenness. It hadn't rained Right? People were in a place of idol worship. And then, total revelation. And when they fell on their faces, they said something. We actually say it in the Mariv, in, in certain Nusachs, before the Shemona Esrei. And it's actually, it's interesting, another Purim connection, it's, or Yom Kippur connection. We, it's the climax of the Yom Kippur service. You know? which is at the end of Yom Kippur, everyone yells seven times. And, you know, if you're at the Happy Minion, it's like amazing people are yelling at the top of their lungs, I'm sure. And, you know, wherever, all over the world, it's the highest. People are yelling, Hashem Hu Elohim, Hashem Hu Elohim, Hashem Hu Elohim. God is God, God is God. And it's using, you know, a, a very special formula, for, 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 formula of saying that, that God is God. Hashem Yudke Vavke Hu HaElohim. Meaning Yudke Vavke means God's infinite expression, God beyond borders. Elohim is God within nature, right? But it's just one power. So, so and it's also, it's Rachamim and Din, it's mercy and judgment. That the judgments that I experience in my life, which is, resonates with the name of God, Elohim, that even that's coming from a place of Chesed and Yudke Vavke and mercy, right? Hashem Hu Elohim. Even that is is coming from a place of mercy. But interestingly, so they fell on their faces and they said that, and, and, and that's, our, that's our climax of the Yom Kippur davening. But you know, there's an interesting word in there. 
What? You got two names of God, two big names of God, right? Heaven and earth, basically, is in that is in that is in that phrase. What about the middle word there? Who? <laughs> so I just saw a Torah that I've been looking for like my whole life. You know, I have to thank Rabbi Barron for writing this up. Unbelievable Torah. So I forgot who said it. I'll, I'll try to tell you next week. And always building on something from the Marsha. So so you know, I'm gonna try to speak in code a little bit here, but hopefully you know the Pasuk, but I'm, I won't go into too much depth, but we've talked about it many times. When it talks about it's the, the throne of God, that as long as Amalek is present, the throne of God, so to speak, is incomplete. So we use the phrase, the Torah uses the phrase, case, ka, right? And two separate words. Really what it should say is, kisei Hashem, meaning the throne of God. But the word throne is spelled without the letter Aleph, and the name of Hashem is spelled without the final two letters Vav and He. Okay, and we say that, that Hashem is here. Again, this is concealment versus revelation. That God is here, but as long as Amalek is here, as long as evil is here, the throne of God isn't fully manifest, meaning it's not fully revealed. It's here, but it's not fully revealed. And what are the three missing letters? Who? Who? <laughs> right? Hey, Vav, Aleph. Right? These are the three missing letters. Hashem, Hu, Elohim. Right? The ability to completely reveal God. When God is completely revealed. When I know that absolutely... All the mercy is coming from him. And when I know all the judgment is coming from him, and I'm not one of these people who's saying, you know what, all the good that I have in my life, that's from God, but the bad times, I don't know where that comes from. You know, uh, you know cognitive dissonance. Uh, uh, it can't be coming from God because God is only good, so I don't understand what, what, what this trouble is for. Or the other people who's like, every problem in my life, ah, it's all God and all the good stuff. Oh, of course it's me. To get rid of both of those, Templates and to understand absolutely everything. Hashem Hualukim. Absolutely everything is revealed. That it's on the level ever. My whole life is Purim. My whole life is Purim. That it's not this concept, I'm like an angel and, and my soul is being clean and everything like that, which is all true, but it's like an idea. It's beyond that. It's all real. It's all in front of my face. God is running the whole world. God is in front of me this second. 